This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Hebrews. Faith can operate at the same time fear does. It's an antithesis. Where we have fear, perfect love drives out fear, by the way, right? So the more fear we have, the more God we need. And the more we get in His presence, and we, and we soak up Scripture, and we just, you know, lay hold of God, the more that love that we have with Him will drive out the fear of our hearts, and then we can be people who exercise faith. And they opted for faith over fear, and that's why they're listed here in the Hebrew Hall of Faith. The more fear we have, the more God we need. Do you find fear overwhelming your life? Pastor Gary is going to show you the answer today is faith. And faith is found by spending time with God. Whenever you find yourself living in fear, seek out time with God. Spend time in His Word. Spend time worshiping Him. The greater the fear in your life, the more time you need with God. You're never truly trapped by fear. God has provided you a clear path out. Spend time with Him today and watch the fear disappear. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Exodus, chapter 1, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. This wicked Pharaoh at this particular time gave an edict. It's given to us in Exodus chapter 1. When he saw the slave population beginning to grow, because God continued to multiply the numbers of the Hebrew people, even though they were enslaved and brutally mistreated, the Pharaoh saw the number of Hebrew slaves increasing. He got nervous. He thought the more the slave population increases, you know, they could be a threat to us. They could overtake us. So he gives this horrible edict in the land of Egypt that every Hebrew baby who is born, if it's a boy, kill it. If it's a girl, let her live. He's trying to weed out the potential threat of the male population of the Hebrew slaves becoming a threat to the Egyptians. So he gives this order. It's basically, it's infanticide. It's partial birth abortion. As the, as the baby's being born, if you see that it's a boy, kill it. This is the edict that he was given. Again, nothing has changed. It's like we're reading our newspapers. When people say to me, you know, the Bible's a really outdated book. I'm like, really? Because things really haven't changed too much. So we see it in the Bible. We're, we're, seeing, we're seeing partial birth abortion. We're seeing, you know, all abortion is wrong, but, you know, it's particularly horrible, the, the thought of, like, the you know, the third trimester and the partial birth abortion. And so, you know, for people who every once in a while want to gently say to me, you know, stay out of the, stay out of the argument about abortion and stuff. Hey, God engaged in the argument. He's got a whole chapter in Exodus chapter 1 about how horrific it was. And as a result, it tells us in Exodus 1.17 that the Hebrew midwives, the women who were delivering these babies, right? It says they feared God more and did not obey the king. So when they were delivering these babies, and they saw it was a baby boy, 
They're like, well, we're not killing this because we got to obey God. And so they would keep the baby boys. And among one of these baby boys born during this time when this edict went out about killing these baby boys was Moses. And he's born to Amram and Yachabed. And it says that when he's three months old, they can't hide him any longer. You know, I mean, I guess at that point, like he's, he's cooing too much or crying too loudly or whatever. So they're trying to hide him because they know if, if he is discovered by an Egyptian, he's going to be killed. So they try to do all they can to hide him after he's born. But at the age of three months, they realize we just can't hide him any longer. And so they do a very, somewhat of a risky thing. But this is the reason why they're in the hall of faith, because they're going to trust God with their child which is always a good reminder for any of us, right? we got to trust God with our children. And so they decide they're going to make a little basket out of reeds, and Jacobed lines the basket with tar, pitch, to make it, uh, you know, so that, so that it'll be able to float on the water. And um, she, makes, she waterproofs it with this process of pitch and tar, places little three-month-old, baby Moses in this little makeshift reed basket. By the way, we don't really know his original name. I'll explain that in a moment. And she pushes him off into the Nile River. And she's just, tra- just trusting God and praying. And in God's providence of things, Pharaoh's daughter goes down to the Nile to bathe, and she finds this basket. And she's actually the one that gives him the name Moses. She gives him a Hebrew name because she can tell he's a Hebrew boy. So she gives him the name Moshe. That's the, that's the name he, Moses. And Moshe means drawn out because she draws him out of the water. Now, by the way, when you put all that together, in case you didn't know, Pharaoh's daughter was great with money because the Bible says that she went down to the bank of the Nile and withdrew a little profit. All right, there you go. There you go. All right, that's the joke for the night. That's an oldie but goodie, friends. She names him Moisha, meaning drawn out. She draws him out of the water. We don't even know what his original given name was. It's not mentioned anywhere in the Bible. Some of you are going to think on that joke. You're going to use it later yourself. And, uh, and so, but she takes him out of the water, and she raises him as her own. Now, what's amazing here is that Moses' parents are listed because they trust him. They trust God with their son. And they defied an earthly king in order to honor a heavenly king. And in doing that, they exercised faith over fear. They exercised faith over fear. Because I want you to try to imagine the kind of fear that would grip any parent's heart at the idea that their son could be killed, any child, but in the context of this story, that their son could be killed. And so in order to try to preserve his life, they're going to do something somewhat risky, but they're going to trust God. And so they put him in this little makeshift raft and they put him off in the Nile River. I mean, you got to imagine the fear, the terror, the, the worry, the anxiety, but, but they're trusting God with all of this. And they opted for faith over fear. Faith over fear. We're afraid for his life, we're afraid of what Pharaoh's going to do. We're afraid of this, but we are going to opt for faith over fear. You know, faith can't operate at the same time fear does. It's an antithesis. 
Where we have fear, perfect love drives out fear, by the way, right? So the more fear we have, the more God we need. And the more we get in his presence and we, and we soak up scripture and we just, you know, lay hold of God, the more that love that we have with him will drive out the fear of our hearts and then we can be people who exercise faith and they opted for faith over fear and that's why they're listed here in the hebrew hall of faith and then we read the next few verses about their son moses and so verse 22 down through verse uh sorry verse 24 through 28 by faith moses when he had grown up refused to be known as the son of pharaoh's daughter He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible talking about the Lord. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. All right, so next on our list here is Moses himself. And um, Moses grows up a child of privilege. I mean, you've been adopted by the most powerful man on the planet's daughter. You're going to grow up in Pharaoh's palace, which he did. And he's this child of privilege. Uh, Everything he could possibly want or need was at his disposal. Uh, Stephen, when when he was giving a a recitation of Israel's history just before he was stoned in Acts chapter 7, 22, he said Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. So he had the best life possible, best education possible. He was, you know, living in a wealthy household, uh, a child of privilege. And yet, he knew and understood his Hebrew heritage. Somewhere along the way, and the Bible doesn't give us all the details, but he, he understood, you know, maybe from the very beginning, Pharaoh's daughter explained this to him so that he knew and he understood. And, and it was hard for him because though he was a child of privilege, his heart ached when he saw his own Hebrew people being mistreated as slaves. And it ached so much and it bothered him so much that, not saying this is the right thing, but he took matters into his own hands. And one time when he saw an Egyptian mistreating a fellow Hebrew of his, he killed the Egyptian. He killed the Egyptian, hit him in in the sand, thought nobody has seen what I've done, but people had seen what he had done and they tweeted it all out. And so now everybody knew. And can you imagine, I mean, the social media craziness in our world today. But, you know, back in the day, even, even people can see firsthand, and they saw. And so he ran. He fled. He fled to Midian. And the next 40 years he would spend in the desert of Midian where God would shape him into being a shepherd because God would use him to go back and to lead the Hebrew slaves out of their slavery into the promised land. And so God used the 40 years while Moses was in the Midian, the desert of Midian to shape him and refine him. And what is so great and admirable about Moses is that Even though he had all of this privilege at his disposal, he didn't see all those things as of greater value in the present than what he knew in his heart was Christ in the future. And so he denied himself those things for the sake of the greater value of life, which was Christ. His identity was more about being a child of God, even if that meant hardship and mistreatment, than in being the adopted grandson of Pharaoh with all of its privileges and pleasures. 
He was willing to suffer. He was willing to be mistreated, to be disgraced in the present for the sake of Christ in the future. Because he, you know, he, God had revealed and put in the heart of these people that there was this great and ultimate promise. And, you know, even Moses understood the idea of Messiah because he even spoke about how there would come a prophet like me to be raised up among our brothers. So Moses even understood these things intuitively and, and God by his spirit had placed this in his heart. And so, and so there he was recognizing that the things of Christ and living for the things of God were of greater value than the, what this world had to offer, even though at his disposal was everything that this world had to offer. Too many Christians have sacrificed a life of commitment to Christ on the altar of worldly pleasures. Not Moses. Moses had it all, wealth, pleasure, knowledge, power, fame, anything he wanted. But he chose God because by faith he believed God, that there was a greater reward in Christ than anything that this world had to offer. Now, can you have all those things and still have Christ too? Yeah, sometimes. But rarely do people handle fame, fortune, power, and God all at the same time very well. And so whenever faced with a decision between the pleasures of this world for a season and the rewards of the Lord for eternity, always choose the Lord. Always choose the Lord. And then in verse 29, here's some honorable mentions, just um, not by name, but in verse 29, by faith, the people, just plural, The people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. So this is all a continuation of the story, but here in the the hall of faith are mentioned just the people, meaning the Hebrew people who now on their way out of slavery uh, from Egypt, on their way toward the promised land, there's this miraculous event that happens where God parts the Red Sea and they, they move from Egypt uh, in, into the Sinai and on their way to the promised land. It was just this uh, miraculous, remarkable thing that God did. It's, it's all mentioned in Exodus chapter 14. God instructs Moses, just stretch out your, your staff, your, your rod over the Red Sea, and God parts the Red Sea. And the Bible says in Exodus 14 that a wall of water on, on one side and a wall of water on the other, and they were able to walk through on dry ground. Now, again, there's three to three and a half million Jews who are exiting Egypt. That, that group of, that initial group of 70 has now become a population of three to three and a half million. And they're on their way to Israel. So just think about and calculating the number of people. You know, you got three to three and a half million people. And the Bible says in Exodus 14 that God did this miracle and they all got through and over the, the Red Sea by way of dry ground in the period of one night. So how long does it take to get three to three and a half million people across the Red Sea in one night? And how, how far abreast would they need to be in order to accommodate that in one night? Well, somebody did the math, not me. But somebody calculated that it would mean that they had to walk 5,000 abreast to be able to get three to three and a half million people across the Red Sea in one night. 5,000 abreast would mean that I don't know what you think, you know, when you watch Cecil B. DeMille's, you know, movie version of, of the Exodus and Moses and all this stuff, it's great, but it looks like just this narrow swath, like you could drive a few cars through. The swath to accommodate 5,000 people abreast would be three to three and a half miles wide. That's how great God parted the Red Sea. 
All right. Now, you're going to hear some skeptics, you're going to hear some people, some liberal theologians say, well, you know, the original Hebrew of the Red Sea <laughs> is Yom Suf. And Yom Suf means the reed of sea, of the, the sea of reeds. And it doesn't really mean the Red Sea, it means the sea of reeds. And the sea of reeds was a marshy area. And the marshy area of the Red Sea was only about six inches deep of water. And so what happened was that they all walked across six inches of water. That's all that really happened. Well, great. If you believe that, then that's a greater miracle. Because you know what the Bible says? That God drowned Pharaoh's army (laughs) in six inches of sea. That's incredible. That's praise be to God. But that's the other part of what happens here. They go through on dry ground and they trust God. They trust God. I mean, you know, this wall of water. And, and, and they're just like, we're going to trust God and we're going across. And then as soon as they get across, Moses stretches out his staff once more and the waters come back over the Egyptian army. And all the Hebrew people had to see were little Egyptian helmets bobbing up and down the river. All right. And so it was the miracle of God. But they trusted God. And they're like, this, this, is, this is hard. We don't, we, what are we supposed to do? We're walking across the Red Sea. Is this all right? And, so, and as it parts, you know, God displays this wonderful miracle. But they trusted God. It's all about this trust issue. This trust issue. Let's look at one more generic reference here. Verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. Now, this story is recorded in... Uh, Joshua chapter uh, 6, um, this, is, this is when they finally get to the promised land. Uh, so we're advancing here like 40 years. The first city that they come to is the city of Jericho, and God wants them to take it. And so they come to Jericho. Jericho, by the way, is the oldest inhabited city in the world. Damascus, Damascus, Syria, is the oldest continually occupied city in the world. But Jericho is the oldest city in the world. Uh, I've been to Jericho a few times. One of, one of my first trips to Israel, we stopped in Jericho. We don't go there anymore only because of um, some of the tension between uh, Israelis and Palestinians. And Jericho has since been uh, turned over to the Palestinian Authority. But first time I went to Jericho, wonderful people, very very warm and friendly Palestinians. And as soon as I get into the old part of Jericho, they, some Palestinian men offered me some thick black coffee, you know, in the, in the little shot glasses. Like you can stand a spoon and, and that coffee is so thick and black. Black, and they offered me some coffee, and so you know, and I, I had Tums with me, so I took it graciously, and and then and then they offered me the what they say in Arabic is the shisha, but uh, commonly today we call it the hookah pipe, right? So they're like, you smoke hookah pipe with us, you smoke shisha. Uh, thanks for the coffee. <laughs> you know, I listen. They didn't understand. You know, I'm the guy that I don't touch handles in a public restroom, right? I'm not going to be sucking on a hose that 10,000 guys before me have been smoking, right? But it's a kind of this communal thing, like, you know, smoke this shisha with us, you know, it's, it's, and this is glass, you know. Anyway, again, vaping, it's been around forever, friends. Like, there's nothing new under the sun. But I politely refuse. And, uh, and, and so, anyway, Jericho is the first city that they come to here. And God instructs Joshua. I want you, I want you to take all the people, I want you to start marching around the city, just, I want you to do it every day for six days, every day, just go around the city, every day for six days. And that's what they're doing. 
And on the seventh day, you're to blow the trumpets and then this, you know, wonderful miracle of, you know, the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. It's not a childhood fantasy story. This is a real historical event. By the way, there's archaeological evidence to it, and I'll mention that in a moment. But it's interesting to me. I, I imagine that the people of Jericho, whatever you would call them, Jerichons, I don't know, that they're looking over the walls, watching these silly Hebrew people walking around every day like this for six days. You know they're thinking, these people are silly. These people are silly. And that's what speaks to me about this scene here. Sometimes faith looks silly. Because, you know, faith is the evidence of things hoped for. You know, you don't, you don't, it's not a tangible thing. You're, you're trusting God in ways that might look silly to people. Some people are going to say to you, you know, why are you trusting God for this? And why do you believe God for that? And why are you holding on to your faith? And you know, why do you, and and to, to other people who don't understand, it might look silly. Let it look silly. Let it look silly. Because on the seventh time around that city, then they blew their trumpets and God did an implosion. God, God knocked those walls down. Now in, in March of 1990, Time Magazine did a, did a feature story March 5th of 1990 to be exact, uh, called Score One for the Bible. And in the article, archaeologist Kathleen Kenyon, they did an article about Kathleen Kenyon and how she claimed Jericho's walls had fallen suddenly. It's interesting, and, and I know our time has escaped this, so I'm just going to mention this quickly. Excavations in the, ancient, in the ancient city of Jericho first happened by German archaeologists in, uh, in, in, a, in a German expedition team in 1907 and 1909. Subsequent digs by Kathleen Kenyon in the 1950s, and then an Italian team in 1997, found as part of the ancient walls of Jericho that the city walls actually fell outward. They actually fell outward because it was not the work of an army pushing the walls in. It was the result of God pushing the walls out. And what's interesting is in Joshua chapter 6, verse 5, the instruction to the people was, when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout, then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. And what they found through archaeological digs is that the ancient walls of Jericho fell outward and they formed a natural siege ramp. And that when the rubble of these walls fell outward, the people of God were able to just walk right up the walls like a ramp into the city, consistent with what God had told them in Joshua chapter 6, verse 5. So again, I don't need archaeology to validate the Bible, but it's always good when archaeology catches up with the Bible and helps to remind us that, yeah, in fact, these things that God tells us in Scripture actually did happen. And these people trusted God And they did what looked silly, but they believed God. They believed that he's true and faithful to his promises. And God showed himself to be true to them. And so these unknown Hebrew people, not by name, at least, we know who they are, but not by name, are mentioned as a group that they believed God. And so the walls of Jericho fell. That's all we have for today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. 
If you'd like to listen to this edition in Hebrews again, or if you'd like to explore other messages from Pastor Gary through the Bible teachings, just visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc, or download our mobile app to stay connected to the truth of God's Word everywhere you go. It's a great way to have a quiet time anytime. You'll find a link at our website, along with more information about the church behind this ministry, Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. If you're in the area, come visit us. You'll find service times and more information at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Is there anything happening in your life right now that we could be praying for? We'd love to know how God is leading you and changing your heart. Or is there anything God's doing that deserves some rejoicing? Please let us know. We love that we can interact with our listeners and we feel honored to be able to pray for your requests. Give us a call at 703-771-1500. That number again, 703-771-1500. With that, our time with you has come to an end for today. Put a marker in your Bible where we left off in Hebrews and make plans to join Pastor Gary next time for more here on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go But still you know